Hello from Gilbert and Tobin. I'm Moya Dodd. And I'm Matt Rubenstein, and this is The Competitive Edge, what you need to know about competition law in Australia and around the world. Today, how greenwash my valley, net zero and greenwashing. So I'm guessing that the valley here is the Latrobe Valley, which supplies most of the electricity generation in Victoria. Yes, and new partner Jeremy Jose is from our Melbourne office and talks to us about electricity regulation in the time of decarbonisation and the environmental claims that have become a real priority for regulators around the world. Could you imagine a group of power companies getting together and applying for authorization to the ACCC to engage in a coordinated exit of the market to increase power prices? For the ACCC to authorise that kind of conduct would be politically and socially very difficult. It's much better if we've got a policy framework that properly prices and properly incentivises decarbonisation. I think it would be very difficult to rely on the existing tools for coordination that are in our competition laws. Now, How Green Was My Valley was, of course, a book and then a John Ford movie that won five Academy Awards in 1942, actually beat Citizen Kane in Best Picture and Best Director. And it's about a mining village in the South Wales coalfields, which is plagued by mine disasters, torn apart by strikes, and eventually it's so buried in coal dust and slag that everybody has to leave. But we're hoping things will go a bit better here in Australia. Yeah, well, it's looking a bit rocky at the moment. The electricity market operator has just suspended the spot market after deciding that it couldn't operate within the rules at the moment. How did we get here, Matt? Well, it's been described as a perfect storm. A number of the coal generators are running below capacity due to some unscheduled maintenance. Coal and gas are expensive right now for various reasons, including the war in Ukraine. And it just got quite a bit colder, at least by Australian standards. Yes, and that was making electricity a lot more expensive on the spot market, which is why the market operator imposed a cap of $300 per gigawatt hour, which is less than it cost for the generators to supply. So you can imagine what they did. That's right. And there is a mechanism to pay generators who supply below cost because of the cap. But apparently there's also a more generous mechanism for generators who have to be ordered into the market. So that's what a lot of them did. They withdrew supply under the cap and waited till they were sent back in with more compensation. Sounds like a power play. And that seems rational, I guess, uh, from their perspective, but it was very disruptive. Yeah, we've had threats of load shedding. We were all asked to turn our heaters off in the evening. And eventually the market operator stepped in and now it's directing traffic for the time being. And this is the first time this has happened uh, to the whole market since it began in 1998. So is this because we've got too many renewables or not enough? It depends who you ask. As well as being a bit cold lately, it's been a bit cloudy, so there's been a bit less solar generated. But a lot of people, including Jeremy, are saying that this all shows the need for stable policy and regulatory frameworks that can set us up for a long-term and orderly transition to renewable energy. It should really be full steam ahead from here. As long as that steam comes from hydrogen, I suppose. But what else has been happening around the grounds? Well, there's big news in the Vena money transfer case, which has just produced Australia's first criminal cartel convictions and jail sentences for individuals. That's a pretty big deal, even though all those sentences have been suspended. I always thought a suspended sentence was like... (laughs) Thanks, Maya. So the company itself, as well as two of its people and two people from a competitor, have all pleaded guilty to fixing exchange rates and fee discounts for sending money from Australia to Vietnam. And that affected transactions worth about $2.5 billion over five years. Well, that sounds like a lot of money. It does, though it's not clear exactly how much the transfer businesses made off that. Everybody agreed in the case that Vena's turnover was less than $100 million a year, so the maximum penalty was going to be the minimum maximum of $10 million. And in the end, the court imposed a penalty of $1 million. And how did it calculate the sentences? Yeah, that was really interesting. So when the court started handing out criminal fines for cartel conduct, it was able to look at civil penalties for the same kind of conduct over the years. 
And I guess you can argue about whether a criminal fine is really that different from a civil penalty for a business. But for an individual, you'd have to think that there's nothing else that's really anything like a jail sentence. Well, indeed. But there are a lot of criminal law principles that have built up around sentencing of people. There are, and the court drew on quite a few of those. Uh, It focused on the stress and the uncertainty that everyone had been through over the almost six years since the businesses were raided. It looked at the reasons that the individuals got involved in the cartel, looked at their good character, their mental and physical health, and also the impact that going to jail would have on them and their families in particular. So I'm guessing those four people pleaded guilty on the basis that the prosecutors would then support a suspended sentence. But there were five people originally charged, weren't there? There were, and there's still one son from the family that owned FEMA who didn't plead guilty, and he's scheduled for a jury trial later this year. And what has ACCC Chair Gina Cascott-Leib said about these developments? The ACCC hasn't put out a press release, at least yet, like they have for criminal cases in the past. Uh, A spokesperson told our friends at MLEX that they consider the sentences reflect the seriousness of the charges, and the ACCC will keep referring important alleged cartel cases to the prosecutors for court action. But no Gina on Vena. No, we haven't seen her in the Vita Arena. All right. What else is going on? Well, in royal news, we've just come off a long weekend in many parts of Australia for the Queen's official birthday, and that came hot on the heels of Her Majesty's Platinum Jubilee, or Platy Jubes, as I hear some of the Brits are calling it. Well, that's a bit lovely jubbly, isn't it? I guess it is. But before that, there was a bit of excitement about the Queen's speech, which is a traditional part of the opening of Parliament, where the Queen lays out the government's priorities for the new term. What, like don't search for farm equipment videos while you're waiting for a vote and accidentally watch pornography, that one? That's going to be an enduring priority, I would think. But this year, many people expected Her Majesty to announce new statutory powers for the Competition and Markets Authority, and especially its Digital Markets Unit, to come out this year. That would allow it to intervene in acquisitions, develop and enforce codes of conduct, address market power, and impose big fines for mistreating consumers. And it was all supposed to come before Parliament this term in a new Consumer and Competition Bill. Oh, wait. Obviously, they listened to our last episode and stole our idea. That's the new word order. Well, it would have been. But as it happened, Prince Charles gave the speech instead of the Queen. And he just said that draft legislation will be introduced in due course. And we haven't seen this draft yet? We haven't, but it's now being referred to as the Draft Digital Markets Competition and Consumer Bill. Mm. So it's still the old word order and no actual legislation until the 2023-24 term at the earliest. Mm. And could this have anything to do with Digital Minister Chris Philp telling the tech companies that they'll enjoy a quote-unquote light-touch approach to regulation in the UK, maybe compared to what they might be used to in Europe? It could, it could. And it may be that some of these very far-reaching plans for new frameworks and powers are slowing down just a bit in some places at least, perhaps because things get quite challenging as you get into the detail, but maybe also because the agencies are using their existing powers in ways that they hadn't before. I saw some poll results out of the US that suggested that fewer Americans think there should be more tech regulation. And maybe that's because there's a lot more proposed legislation, more enforcement, and, you know, more hipsters in the agencies than before. Maybe it feels like enough to more people. Yeah, maybe it does. Anyway, we'll be talking about the challenges of regulating these markets with new partner Andrew Lowe next time. Hmm. But this time, of course, we're hearing from another new partner, Jeremy Jose, about electricity regulation and environmental claims. We recorded this interview before the latest dramas unfolded, which only makes it more relevant and timely. Prescient, even. Let's take a listen. Jeremy is an ex-ACCCer of 10 years standing, worked on large matters there, led their team on the gas inquiry, and he's been here at G&T since 2016 doing a lot of work in all parts of the energy sector. Welcome, Jeremy. Thank you. 
Jeremy, you have got a truckload of experience in energy regulation, amongst other things, and it's all been thrown into pretty sharp focus by the imperative that the world faces to reach net zero. And that's been recognised as both crucial and urgent. I think we saw that reflected in the ballot box as well at the recent election where a lot of candidates got up on that platform. Yeah, absolutely. The broader imperative for Australia to do its part in the global effort to combat climate change is it's going to happen. There's been a real policy stagnation in Australia and the climate wars have been front page news for the past 15 years. But regardless of what our politicians think, there will be a move towards decarbonisation and it's just a question of how we we fit in with that. We've seen some recent moves by major private generators, Origin announcing the early closure of its Araring generator, Mike Cannon-Brooks's raid on the AGL shareholding. There will be private action, even if there's not government action, but there's increasingly likelihood that we will have government action as well. And this is big, isn't it? I mean, the the sheer scale of what is required to get to net zero. Yeah, it's just enormous. There's some estimates that by 2050, there'll be a need for $5 trillion of investment globally per year. In Australia alone, it's anticipated that there's at least $63 billion of investment in decarbonisation over the next five years. So there's a a real opportunity and a, a real challenge to the existing way of doing things. Well, I want to come back to how we might get to net zero in a moment. But first of all, I want to talk about greenwashing because both the incoming and the outgoing chairs of the ACCC have flagged that they want to stay on top of greenwashing. Tell us what exactly is it and how does the ACCC see its role in preventing it? Greenwashing is essentially a term that's used to refer to misleading environmental claims or claims about sustainability that aren't properly backed up. And I think the broader social attention on this issue means that there's a real challenge because there's an opportunity, and the ACCC has seen this, for unscrupulous operators to push the envelope and to make claims about the environmental benefits of their products that aren't properly backed up. We all want to feel better about what we're doing to the environment. So one way to sell me something is to tell me that it's good for the environment. Exactly. And the ACCC sees this as both a consumer protection and a competition issue. So from the consumer's point of view, you want to know that if you're buying a product that makes a claim about its recyclable material or its biodegradable quality or the carbon intensity of the emissions process, that those claims are robust. But also from a competition point of view, an unscrupulous operator could be gaining a competitive advantage over other suppliers by using a cheaper manufacturing or a less environmentally sound process, but still getting the same benefit by claiming that they are environmentally friendly. And so the ACCC actually is flagged as their highest consumer protection priority in the annual enforcement priority speech recently. So this is something that they will be looking at across the market. And uh, Rod also flagged that the ACCC will be working closely with other regulators such as ASIC and the Clean Energy Regulator to identify who's the best place to deal with a particular issue. And they put out a green marketing guide once upon a time, did they not? Yeah. Um, if, if you're listening, Gina, um, uh, this is a really good opportunity for you to refresh that because in 2011, the ACCC did publish a green marketing guide that gave some good practical tips for businesses wanting to make claims. And uh, some of the material in that's a little long in the tooth by now and a really good opportunity in the context of this enforcement priority to refresh that. So if the ACCC are training their sites on this area, how do companies keep themselves out of the crosshairs? Fundamentally, it's important that companies ensure that any environmental, sustainability and renewables claims they make have a solid basis. 
Many of these claims are representations about manufacturing processes or future events, and companies need to make sure that if they're asked a question about them, they've got a solid basis. So for example, if you're supplying a product that markets itself as environmentally friendly, do you have a reasonable basis for making that claim? If you're a manufacturer in an emissions-intensive industry making public decarbonisation targets, do you have a verifiable plan to meet those goals? There was some advice put out publicly by Noel Hutley a couple of years back about the importance of directors and companies um, when they're making a net zero claim or an emissions reduction claim, um, particularly where those claims rely on as yet unproven technology. Do those companies have a reasonable basis for meeting that stated goal? So if you say we're going to be net zero by this date or we're going to reduce our emissions by, you can't just say that without having a plan that is going to stand up to scrutiny when the ACCC taps you on the shoulder and says, what's your basis for saying this? Yeah, absolutely. And companies have already facing some shareholder activism and some pressure from even class action lawsuits um, about the basis on which those kind of claims are made. The good old community expectations test. Yeah, yeah. And it's, um, again, the current environment is ripe for this focus, given how, how much importance consumers and the general public are placing on these kind of claims. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting looking also, obviously, at the election results in Australia, that ESG, which previously was an acronym that was talked about by maybe professional services providers and the, the corporate governance community, when you look at how people voted, that the key swing issues were the E, climate change and sustainability, the S around, you know, treatment of women and Me Too, and the G around integrity. And it just feels like these issues have risen to the top of Australian consciousness. And of course, where that goes, the regulators are as well. Absolutely. Regulators move with the times and the focus and the stated focus um, by the ACCC in the consumer space over this year is on, on these kind of issues. And that's reflecting that. One of the challenges is always a standardised method of reporting and calibrating these things so that you can prove you're meeting the targets. Do we have enough standards set on these sorts of environmental and sustainability statements that companies might make? And might we see more government programs and reporting schemes to back that up? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a developing area. So renewable power is one area where there's a lot of focus on these claims. That's a kind of claim that a lot of companies are looking to make. University of New South Wales recently announced that they're moving to 100% renewable power procurement. But how do you buy renewable power off a grid that intermingles electricity from all sorts of sources? The, the ways of accounting for and tracking for the renewable attributes of that power are really quite complex and there's a lot of detail in those rules. There's some longstanding government accreditation schemes, the Green Power Scheme, the Clean Energy Regulator has also established recently the Corporate Emissions Transparency Framework and, and has some rules about that. But something companies need to be aware of is just because there's a government scheme that has certain rules doesn't mean that solely relying on those rules absolves you of your consumer law responsibility. So as one example, um, the definition of renewable power under the Renewable Energy Electricity Act has at various times included gas that's escaped from coal mines and burning virgin native rainforest. No. <laughs> it has. You're and kidding so me. So you could produce power literally burning trees from native rainforests and call it renewable power. But, but wait a minute, that, that sounds like statutorily authorised greenwashing. Well, and, and that's the point. Just because a government program or legislation defines something in one way 
doesn't mean from a consumer law perspective that that is what the reasonable person consuming that product would accept. So you need to be careful and not just blindly rely on a government framework. And then what if the government frameworks say different things? I mentioned the Green Power Accreditation Scheme. Well, that defines renewable power in a certain way, which is different in some material respect from the way that the clean energy regulators reporting frameworks. So which standard do you go by? Do you go by the the lowest common denominator or do you go for the highest standard? There's a lot of complexity and, again, a real opportunity for the ACCC um, at an appropriate point to step in and maybe give some clarity. And maybe for legislators to step in and give some clarity as well. If <laughs> well, you've got- absolutely. And, and the tension there is that this is such a political area that we have had a lack of policy clarity at a federal level particularly as to what we should be doing in this area. And I think that's led to some of the, the slow pace of change in the policy space. Yes, it sounds like the legislative framework is pretty fragmented and ripe for some action. So it's not just Gina who might be listening to this podcast, but maybe there's some policymakers and legislators in government who might be thinking about that as well. Well, let's get on to the hard stuff now. Net zero. How are we actually going to reach net zero? You're an energy regulatory lawyer. How is energy regulation going to help us or hinder us in reaching that goal? What's in the toolbox? How to get to net zero is a, a very big question, but energy regulation does have a bearing on that overall question in a couple of important respects. So the first thing you need to do to get to net zero is to take out the legacy high emissions generations from the system. And there's a couple of issues that arise in doing that, that regulation has something to say about. First of all, if you have unplanned exit of generation that doesn't give the market time to respond and doesn't allow for alternatives to come into place. You can have short-term shocks that lead to very bad consumer outcomes and undermine consumer and public support ultimately for the goal of decarbonisation. So we saw in Victoria a few years back, the French owner of the Hazelwood Power Station, which was one of the dirtiest power plants in the world and absolutely needed to go, but it made a very sudden and unexpected decision to withdraw that from the market and power prices spiked and that became a political issue. And uh, that was a well-recognised problem and the, the um, Finkel report came in and there's now a, a rule and a process around announcing to the market ahead of time. Now, that's not a perfect solution. It's very difficult, particularly for unplanned issues that come up with plants. So if a, a boiler blows up or there's various other issues that degrade their performance, uh, owner might not, if the economic conditions aren't right, spend the money to bring that reliability up to standard or bring that boiler back online. And if um, those are causing the exit, then it's a lot harder to manage that. So you look at other jurisdictions and there's some more orderly schemes. There's contracts for closure and there's auction processes. There's some performance standards. The UK has moved towards aligning capacity markets with net zero goals. There are some policy levers that the governments can look at and that have been tried overseas. We tried to do that in Australia um, uh, back in the Gillard days with a contract for closure process around coal generator. That didn't work at that time, but maybe that's one idea that could come back on the table. But there are regulatory tools that can assist in the orderly transition and making sure that the market outcomes are transparent and that alternatives are in place to stop those short-term spikes that really cause consumer issues. Another issue is that sometimes generators that are in the market have too much of an incentive to stay in the market because the first generator to leave bears all of the cost of leaving, but the remaining generators are the ones that have the benefit, if you like, 
of the higher prices because that generator leaves. So the way our electricity market works is there's auction around prices. And if there's less participants in that auction or less capacity in that auction, the expectations are that prices will increase. And so that can actually create a perverse incentive to hang on to your assets, to, to be the last one to exit so that you keep generating after everyone else has generated and prices go up by a little bit. And that's a, a really hard problem to solve, but it is one where there are potential for regulatory tools. Again, those coordinated auctions for closure or contracts or a capacity market mechanism that might overcome that private incentive to hang on longer than you really should. So coordination between players in the market might be a very good thing rather than something that's dangerous to competition. It's something that's needed to sort of oil the wheels of an orderly exit. Absolutely. But could you imagine a group of power companies getting together and applying for authorization to the ACCC to engage in a coordinated exit of the market to increase power prices? Yes, in some purer sense, that might involve a public benefit because you will decarbonize and you will have a lower emissions and that might be a good social outcome. But for the ACCC to authorise that kind of conduct would be politically and socially very difficult. It's much better if we've got a policy framework that properly prices and properly incentivises decarbonisation rather than I, I think it would be very difficult to rely on the existing tools for coordination that are in our competition laws. Interesting. Interesting one for uh, the ACCC to be thinking about as well. So what else can the regulatory framework do to help us get to net zero? Yeah, well, once we've got the generation out and once we've got the framework for allowing for an orderly exit of traditional generation, well, obviously we need to bring and incentivise the new generation. And historically, the national electricity market has relied on an energy market and an incentive framework through prices to drive investment. And for the first 10 years or so of the, the national electricity market, that worked very well. And we had a lot of new investment in generation and power prices fell. And most of that investment was done by vertically integrated generators that were able to gain the benefit of investment in generation, both across their wholesale as well as their retail arm. The question is, do we have the right frameworks and are we allowing existing players enough freedom to have policy certainty about the environment they're going to invest in and that their business model will allow them to earn the benefits of making those very expensive investments over time. It just they, they won't make these investments and then have regulatory outcomes after the fact come in and take all the potential profits away. We've got problems on two areas there. One, on the will the government set a stable policy environment that will give us certainty and properly price carbon? That's been a very fraught area. And so what we've had is instead of private investment, the government has stepped in. And when the government steps in and invests, that can be good, but it can also lead to things like a politically favoured curry curry $600 million gas generator that fed into a government agenda for a gas-led recovery without that necessarily being the best social investment. Or we end up with big ticket items that might not be the most cost-effective but might be very politically attractive, like Snowy 2.0. Now, Snowy 2.0 might be a great project, but it's not clear that it's the most cost-effective way to deliver the kind of renewable capacity. And so when the government invests that, we ultimately, either the public purse or, or private companies um, and, and consumers end up paying more for the electricity. And it might be better to just set the rules and allow for the private sector to make that in investment. 
The other difficulty is that the regulatory attitude towards vertically integrated generators, which, as I mentioned, have historically been the source of most efficient generation in the NEM, has been very anti-vertical integration. There's been a lot of moves to try to prevent them from growing or to break them up or to incentivize other business models over time. The ACCC has taken action, um, generally unsuccessful, to try to prevent vertical integration in the NEM. And also on the retail side, there's been a lot of focus in recent years on reducing retail power prices, which of course is good for consumers in the short term. But the question is whether or not the incentive is for regulators to take short-term pricing decisions to reduce prices, but not allow those firms the return that they need to justify further investments. So if you have a retail regulatory framework that doesn't allow for any retail profits to be made over time, then why would a vertically integrated generator invest in plant and equipment that is the type of investment we need to reach these decarbonisation goals? So I think on both sides, the, the regulatory framework matters. One, setting the right incentives for private investment rather than having government investment. And two, allowing for those companies to make a return um, that will justify that investment. It sounds like there's a lot of work for regulatory policy to do in this energy sector. There certainly is. If we had a stable regulatory framework, we would sit back and we would have a a carbon price and allow private enterprise to respond to those price signals. But we flirted with a a carbon price and it got called a carbon tax and got defeated at the ballot box. So I, I don't think we're going back there. We're going to have some sort of second best solution, but hopefully, um, especially with the recent election results, there is a solution that's put in place and it can be stable and everyone can know what the rules are going to be and have that certainty needed to make the huge scale of investment needed to reach decarbonisation goals. It feels like there's a serious public appetite for action in this area, though. And while ordinary Australians might not be the mind of information that you are on these matters, they do want to see a plan that they can understand and buy into. I agree. And I I think I'm I'm more optimistic now than I was before the election. And I think the government is going to be pushed to action and is going to feel that it has a mandate to act. Excellent. That's all very fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jeremy. What a great interview. It really is a mine of information. Yeah, just not a coal mine. No. And if you want to stay up to date, Jeremy writes a monthly energy market update, which you can subscribe to in our show notes. So what's coming up in your crystal ball this week? Well, speaking of the Queen's speech, ACCC Chair Gina Cascotley recently gave an interview for the American Bar Association, where she touched on a few issues that suggested some points of departure from the previous leadership of the ACCC. Did she mention our labyrinthine, cryptic crossword-style criminal cartel provisions? She did. She actually kind of stood up for them. She said they really had all the elements you'd expect from a cartel provision. The ACCC and CDPP have had success in enforcing them. And in the one case where they haven't convinced a jury, it may just be that this is all very new, they're still working out the best way to give jury directions, and they'll have more opportunities to get that right in the future. I think you are just seeing, as compared to the United States, infancy really for us in taking such a case to a jury. But I do not see an inherent reason why we cannot be successful in the way the Commission has in the past. And the next time might be the last Vena money transfer defendant later in the year. It might. It'll be interesting. The ACCC chair also had a more nuanced take on the nature of concentrated markets, 
She said that those proposals for merger reform last year were introduced in a way that focused on concentration, market power and market structure. And in a way that proposed new presumptions and deeming provisions based on those things, right? That's right. But she said that really, while the ACCC would always look more closely at concentrated industries, which are a lot of industries in Australia, it actually didn't presume any outcome just on the basis of concentration. It would always do a broader analysis based on other things like barriers to entry. If you were to watch the way the ACCC had been and has considered its matters, it has continued to look at the impact upon consumers and and those elements. And while it, it will commence with a greater degree of scrutiny in more concentrated industries, it will take a broader analysis than solely presuming the um, outcome on the basis of that. That does sound like a bit of a course correction. Yeah, I mean, what former chair Rod Sims used to say is that concentrated markets with high barriers to entry will reduce competition and harm consumers and the economy. But I think there can still be a tendency to make assumptions based just on concentration. Or even to presume that there are barriers to entry because a market is concentrated. That's right. I mean, one example of a concentrated market where arguably the only barrier to entry is the price of a pencil is the market for successful solutions to the competitive edge cryptic crossword, which right at the moment seems to be a duopoly. I'm honestly amazed it's any kind of opoly. Well, it is now. We've received completed and correct entries from economist Nick Twart of Houston Kemp and senior lecturer Catherine Kemp from UNSW, who's also been a guest on this podcast, of course. And they'll both be immortalised as answers in the next crossword. Well, won't that just maintain or entrench their market power? It shouldn't do now that everyone else knows those answers. Oh, okay. Well, remember, you can find the crossword and relevant links in the show notes. And we've got some great guests still to come this year, including partners John Lee and Susan Jones on the tension between competition law and intellectual property. And we'll hear from telecommunications veteran and thought leader Richard Feasy. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave us a review and tell your friends. Till next time, this was The Competitive Edge with Gilbert and Tobin. 